0: Reading Short and Deep Hi, I'm Jesse And I'm Eric And today we're reading Short and Deep The Temptation of Herringay" by H.G. Wells first published in the St. James Gazette February 1895 and in the version we're reading it from Startling Mystery Stories Spring 1967 um There's a tradition in uh, uh, pulpy, science fiction-y, fantasy magazines of uh, having a magazine titled Mystery Stories, like uh, Famous Fantastic Mysteries or uh, just Fantastic Stories, and uh, uh, then having no mystery really at all in the entire magazine's run. Um, So, (laughs) is this story startling? Certainly. Um, Is it mysterious? Mm, I guess it's presented as a mystery, but uh, it's certainly not a traditional mystery.
1: Well, that's interesting. Um, The word mystery is much older Mm. than what I think you're referring to. I think you're thinking of things like Sherlock Holmes Mm -hmm. and detective stories Mm -hmm. and, oh, someone committed a crime. So it's a mystery as to who that might be. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the oldest meaning of mystery is the one that we get among the ancients when we talk about the religious mysteries. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: A mystery is a religious truth. And I'm now quoting from the Oxford English Dictionary. Known or understood only by divine revelation. It's those things that uh, it w- it was first. In fact, those things that were taught to the initiates into a given cult that the rest of the world couldn't know. So the oldest meaning of mystery is this hidden knowledge and uh, whether or not those pulp magazines meant that there was something mysterious About these fantastic stories, because this was hidden knowledge that was now going to be revealed to you, the initiate, who gets to read our compendium. Um, Certainly in this story, uh, there is, in fact, a a debate about religious knowledge.
0: Yeah, that's something I made note of, actually. Uh, Throughout the story, there's uh, this narrator who sort of interposes himself between us and the narrative. And says, these aren't my words. This is what herringay said. And it depends right. on his words, not mine. Um, it's almost as if H.G. Wells is that narrator. <laughs> He's saying, look, I'm just writing this story down. I'm letting you decide whether it's true or not. The only evidence are his words and this canvas that has been painted green.
1: Um, yeah, I think, you know, That leads me to wanting to make a suggestion about what the what the final moral of the story might be Mm. or a final moral of the story might be. But in order to do that without blowing it, I I just want to make sure that we have a common understanding of the story. And those of us, those who are perhaps listening to us and haven't read it yet, I want to make sure that we are thinking of the same story. The the story begins with uh, an address from the narrator. Presumably to us, as you say, there's a narrator who keeps interposing. Well, actually, he opens the story that way. It is quite impossible to say whether this thing really happened. It depends entirely on the word of R.M. Haringey, who is an artist. And from that very opening, uh, there is a sort of uh, gentle, sometimes less than gentle, uh, satire about what it means to be an artist. This particular artist is trying to draw and make a painting and he keeps fiddling with it in order to make it work out right. Um, every time he sees it a certain way, he thinks, well, I'll give it a different title and then it'll work right. If you think of it this way or think of it that way. So there's a, an, a running relationship being exposed between what you call a thing and what the thing appears to be by itself, between what we understand something to be, because we hear it, we hear the words and what we actually might see, see of it with our own eyes. Uh, it's a relationship in part between uh, text and image, uh, but as our, as Harringay fiddles and keeps changing the face of this, uh, th- this fellow, this, uh, organ grinder, um, whom he takes to be Italian, I don't know that it must be, but he takes to be Italian, and certainly as he paints him, he calls him Italian. Uh, the painting begin, it comes alive, and it turns out it's the devil. The devil offers Harringay who is at best a mediocre artist, never created a masterpiece, offers him a deal. You give me your soul, I'll give you the ability you will make a great one great masterpiece and they haggle i mean actually harringay says no but the the devil keeps upping his offer harringay gets annoyed and tries to paint over the devil uh first with red paint then with green paint which he gets from his wife's boudoir Mm -hmm. uh and, and ultimately, uh, the, in desperation, the, the the devil in the painting is trying to yell out, we understand from the chopped off language that we see, five master. But that's it. That's the last we hear from the devil. And indeed, at the end, we are told that uh, Harringay never did produce a masterpiece. And according to his friends, uh, he probably never will. And that sort of offered as proof that the story was true, because he refused the deal that would have given him the ability to create a masterpiece. So since he didn't create a masterpiece, <laughs> then we know that the the whole episode must have been true. A bizarre way of doing evidence. Uh, so the whole story is, in that larger sense, I think, a joke. Yep. Does that sound like the story?
0: It's totally the story. This is okay. um, This is a, a, a pretty funny story. Wells <laughs> often has monster characters as his main character. You know, the, the driving character is somebody who you really don't want to hang around with. And I think this is interesting because it's going the opposite way. We've got a, a character who could have made a deal with the devil, uh, was offered a deal with the devil, and rejected it. And that would have turned him into a monster. But because he he paints over the the devil's mouth so he can't can't talk and then paints over the entire picture we get a uh, a kind of humor out of it that that is rare i think for i mean wells can do humor but it's rare in his short stories i think he's got a a few novels where there's a lot of humorous things happening there's a few jokes here and there in you know The War of the Worlds even but this is a straight up humor piece that I think works pretty well
1: I th- I think it does work well as a humor piece I, it comes at an interesting time in Wells's own career uh Wells was born in 1866 this is an 1895 story his first really blockbuster sale um, as a fiction writer rather than as a journalist, which he also was, uh, was the, the Time Machine in 1895, the same year as this. But in fact, as, as I know you know, Jesse, he had published a version of the Time Machine serially as the Chronic Argonauts in 1887 mm-hmm. in the newspapers. And he had to rewrite it and rewrite it a number of times, paring it down until he found a certain voice. And that voice finally came out in 1895. The Chronic Argonauts was published and that was it. You never heard of it again. Or the world, uh, the Time Machine came out and suddenly young Bertie was among the most famous authors in the English language. This story came out somewhat earlier the same year as the revised, actually the seventh time revised version of the time machine. The time machine is a story that also has a nested narrative. Right, So there's someone telling the story, which he hears from the time traveler and the time traveler is telling him and other people the story at dinner, which is what happened to the time traveler or so he says, and he's off in 802701 AD and for a little bit in 30 million AD. Here we have a narrator who isn't a foolish narrator at all. I think we have to ask what kind of a narrator this is. And I think here we have a narrator who's coming to realize his own power in being able to narrate. Mm-hmm. So I'm very resonant, uh, very, very receptive, I should say to your suggestion that in some ways this outermost narrator may be, may be Wells. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons that I uh, like that is that last paragraph, this is Haringay's story, not mine. He supports it by a small canvas, 24 by 30, enameled a pale green, and by violent assertions. Right? It's his words. It is also true that he never produced a masterpiece, and in the opinion of his intimate friends, probably never will. So I think there is a sort of professional jealousy going on here between the narrator and Harringay, But since Harringay never produced a masterpiece, I think there is, in fact, a deeper conflict. Our narrator here is telling us that words are more important than images. <laughs> right? Harringay, every time he paints it, he says, well, let's call it vigil. Let's call it a gentleman. Let's call it a certain gentleman. He keeps thinking, how can I adjust how it's called, this painting he keeps diddling with, how can I adjust it so that it will have the ring of truth? Mm-hmm. The ring of truth doesn't depend upon what you see. The ring of truth depends upon the words that you hear. And so that very opening, it is quite impossible, um, quite impossible to say whether this thing really happened. It depends entirely on the word of R.M. Harringay, who is an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in this instance, what Wells means is not artist in the general sense of someone who deals in any art, sculpture, ballet, music. He means a painter Mm -hmm. and painters are not to be trusted. Mm -hmm. And as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of discussion in here about a failure of imagination. Yes, there is. That's it. Yeah.
0: It's 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 a it's a very funny story to think about in the context of who what is this really about? Um, you know, it's not really about painting. Painting is the medium in which he's telling the story and what's so amazing is that this is something that um I I've, I've tried to talk to a lot of artists about. You know, I'm an I'm an artist but I'm not one of those ones who's made the deal with the devil, so my masterpieces are not true masterpieces they're only masterpieces in my own mind you know no i mind. like them i like I them like too them uh, but they're not masterpieces i'm not going to be uh, hung in the louvre in a thousand years and people going ooh and ah because um uh i think that it is it is some sort of there there's a word that shows up here genius which is funny because it the genius in this the word that shows up in here is to apply to the the model, um, the organ grinder. He said something to the effect of... Um, let's see. It was... Uh, he had seen the man expectant for pennies, and with a promptness that had suggested genius, had had him come in at once, or had had him in at once. So, what is the kind of genius that brings you uh, geniusness, it's being on time <laughs> 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 which is very funny Mr. Wells is hilarious. Um, but obviously th- this is this is the period in which Wells is in his element as a writer. His hand is set to paper and it flows. We have already covered uh, a story from this year. I believe it's from this year. Oh, no, The Treasure in the Forest is from the previous year. Um, That's one of his uh, that we've done on Reading Short and Deep. But in this year, he wrote 15 stories that were published in 1895. And that is just an astounding number of stories to get out in a year and have them published. Later years, he you know he'll do twelve in 1896, and I think it's close to ten in 1894 or uh, around that. But fifteen—that's just an astounding. You know, this is a this is a man who, when he sets pen to paper, really can make something happen. And each isn't perfect in the sense that they're going to be a masterpiece, but. What I love about this story is that it's kind of about what's, what art is and what how it works and how it becomes genius in a certain sense. There's a few lines in here that are directly addressing it, although what's so funny is they say, don't talk about it. <laughs> and that's, that's what I was going right. to say is that when I talk, I, I took uh, philosophy in university, and one of the courses I took was philosophy of art, and I was very interested in that course and I talked a lot about it and the the teacher who was a friend of mine um, said this is the first time teaching this I don't know what what, what I don't know what we're gonna do Jesse <laughs> and I'm like yeah I'm really excited to find out um, so as we wow. went through it reading what different people have thought of what art is and all that stuff we came to a lot of fascinating things but one of them is that you don't want to talk too much about it you don't want to think too much about it but, of course, that's not what's happening here uh, because that's the opposite, according at least to the philosophy that I drag out of this story uh, that Wells is laying down, assuming that uh, R.M. Herringay is not a real person and that this is not a, a true story. Let me read All this right. section from page 85. Art with you, said the picture. It's a poor business, you potter. Ooh, that's a low insult. I don't know how it is, but you don't seem able to throw your soul into it. You know too much. It hampers you. In the midst of your enthusiasms, you ask yourself whether something like this has not been done before, and dot, dot, dot. Look here, said Harringay who had expected something better than criticism from the devil. Are you going to talk studio to me? He filled his number 12 hog hair with red paint. The true artist, said the picture, is always an ignorant man. An artist who theorizes about his work is no longer an artist, but a critic. And then Wagner, Wagner, dot, dot, dot. And then, what's I say, what's that red paint for? And then the devil has his mouth covered up by uh, some more paint, right? So there's an abbreviated sort of uh, almost fourth wall breaking here that it's almost like he's having his cake and eating it too, Wells is. He's saying, art has to be about something specific. That's what I take from this. Um, But you can't say what it is in your art. You can't have like uh, uh, a portrait of a young woman and then have a sign in the picture that says, this is a young woman. (laughs) playing at her without it changing the picture in a great way. So that framing of the story with a name I think is great. And I love that you have picked picked that up um, because I was just, just sliding to pick it up, but when you were you were talking about it, it really brought it out in my mind, and it goes right to the beginning of the story. It depends entirely on the word of R.M. Herringay, who is an artist. Um, and that made me also think of this funny line about what herringay would say if he showed his picture uh in public as it is um the children uh, i guess of the london streets would call would say something to the effect of hey you go home and get
1: framed <laughs> do you remember that right. part i do um, Garn- me- garnome and get framed.
0: Get framed. Go home and get framed. Right? Go home and get framed. Because he doesn't... He's... if He's a man walking down the street. He doesn't look like... He's not. doesn't look alive. He doesn't look like a person. He looks like a picture. Right? And that is just hilarious. That we've got... Uh, an artist who doesn't know what he's painting. And... I I think this is especially hilarious because when I was a kid and I was learning art, I was learning it the wrong way, and I try and teach my students the right way. The wrong way is you just have an idea in your head and you start drawing, right? The problem with that is I I see it in students. When I teach them the right way, um, their, their art improves immensely. Um, and what the right way is is you're looking at something specific. You have a model, and you say this is what I'm look this is what I'm looking towards. This is what I'm working from. So he has the art of the model come in the organ grinder come in, and he paints him. But he doesn't know why he's painting him. It was just the feeling he got when he saw him that he would make a good model. He didn't have something in mind. This is like a short story writer, I think Wells is saying, sitting down and just writing whatever comes to hand. Right? Not having a particular model in mind. And I think that he's right, and that's why Wells's stories are so great is that he always has something very specific in mind that he's working from, but he doesn't show us that picture. And at the end of this this story there's a funny line that sort of indicates that that again which is he says uh, I wished I had taken a photograph of it then it was then it was he began to regret he had not photographed the devil before he had painted him out <laughs> this is um <laughs> he, he wants to have his cake and eat it too, um, but a photograph is not the same kind of art as a painting of a photograph of a paint. You know, it's it's so funny that this is I think a this is a this is a piece my my instructor in the philosophy of art should have had as part of the course curriculum. That's my feeling about this funny story. Huh.
1: Well, I'm glad that you like it and you find it so uh, suggestive. I do, too, I like it and find it suggestive. I, I would add to your observations about the story as theorizing the artistic process, creation process, a couple of other things. One is that a lot of what we hear in this story Like an artist has to have a design and you don't, Haringey. An artist has to have a design is an assertion from the devil. And so I think while Wells makes that appealing, he also lets us know that you've got to be willing to look at what you're creating as you create it. And react to the the thing itself as it as it grows, as you get to experience it, as you bring it into creation. And that, I think, is part of what you were getting at, if I was mm-hmm. hearing it correctly, Jesse, that you can't just do it off the cuff, nor can you just do it slavishly following this a, a, a cookbook. There's got to be something between cookbook and serendipity, And that's where art comes in, where you have a genius meaning in the artist, um, who is that is genius in the original sense of soul, which uh, is how the word gets used, for example, in uh, uh, Pullman's uh, his Dark Materials trilogy. Genius as the soul. And what this devil wants is to take away the soul of Haringey. Well, I can see why uh, he, he It's it's not much of a bargain. I'll trade you one masterpiece because there's not a whole lot of soul here. The soul would be able to mediate between something theoretical, the cookbook, the design and the realities of world. You know, the the person you see, the organ grinder, the the smudge on the page that maybe you suddenly turn into something new. Sort of the way you're trying to get your students to to understand that they it's it's not just automatic, nor is it slavish. It, it goes back and forth and this goes back and forth, which is one of the reasons I think that it's done as a nested narrative, because at that very last paragraph, when Wells, who was clearly more the narrator, clearly a better artist than the. The painting artist within the story says it was a small canvas and then he posts parenthetically 24 by 30. I mean, why? we know what small means. You don't have to give us that precision. So in a sense, Wells is taking a little poke at himself as narrator. Yep. Uh, and I think that's good. That, that shows something that we like. I'd also say <clears throat> that there are religious references in here. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that the story is religious, but for instance, we're told that that it's red ochre and there's a reference to creation and (laughs) you know the hebrew word adam actually means it's a color and that color has come to mean a kind of clay Mm -hmm. and that clay is the clay that gets shaped to make the first human and that's why we call the first human adam it is in fact two steps away from what the word most radically means in hebrew and what it most radically means is a, a red color when harringay runs out of red he goes to his wife's boudoir yeah right? his wife's bedroom that's what happens to to, to adam when he can know when he's no longer innocent you know he's now enthralled to his wife and what does he come up with he comes up with an enamel, which is a harder kind of paint than the kind of paint that we presume he was using, which would have been oil. Um, it's before the acrylics come out. Um, and that enamel is the color of hedgerow sparrow's eggs, which as far as I can tell do vary somewhat, but we know by the last paragraph specifically they're green. So we've gone from red to green though. When you go and put red and green together, you get the colors of Christmas, (laughs) which is the celebration of the birth of the person who will, if you're a believing Christian, redeem us from our original sin, from our original deal with the devil. There's a lot going on in this story that Wells has just allowed us to get glimpses of. And it's, it's already we can see the great resonances that Wells likes to write with. Let me give you just one more example not religious but something else and I I would argue that this, is it a masterpiece I, it's certainly incredibly skillful. On page 83 uh, Harringay went to the blinds and began to pull them down down is what lets in more light in this reversed uh, way of doing things but I think that the lighting is reversed is also part of the nature of the philosophical and ethical resonances of the story. Mm-hmm. They were made of blue Holland with the rollers at the bottom of the windows. So you had to pull them to get more light. He gathered his palette brushes and mall stick from his table. Then he turned to the picture and put a speck of Brown in the corner of the mouth and shifted his attention. Thence to the pupil of the eye. Then he decided that the chin was a trifle too impassive for a vigil. He'd already called it a vigil. So what does he do? Two paragraphs later, he decides, well, you know, I'll just change the title to Vigil of the Unbeliever. Now, <laughs> indeed, that's what's going on here. We're trying to make something that might have been religious into something that's not religious but still art. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to that word mall stick, um, that's not a word that was in my active vocabulary. So I sought it. And. A mall stick, which, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, should be written as one word. A mall stick, I was instantly able to picture when I saw the definition. A mall stick is one of those sticks that you see um, artists use. It's long, straight, thin, and usually has a something like a rubber ball on one end. So it's got a high amount of friction. That... Mall stick is something that gets pushed against something. It could be a tabletop. It could be the frame of the painting that you are drawing, that you're making. The mall stick is used to steady the hand that's actually painting. So he gathered his palette, brushes, and mall stick, right? He needs something artificial to allow his hand to do what needs to be done. But this is Wells, a student of etymology a student of languages. If I didn't know that mall stick is spelled M-A-H-L because I'm reading it, if I just heard it, I would think it's spelled either M-A-L-L as in Paul Mall, right? Uh A place of great um, economic activity, which is certainly behind what's going on for Haringey or M-A-U-L, what animals, wild animals do to unwary humans, Uh Right. Haringey, in order to set out to make a better painting, has to grab up his mall stick. There is a sort of extra jab at an artist who depends more on his tools than his genius Um, that's buried in this, but it's there for us to see. Wells, I think, respects his readers. He's telling us a joke, but the joke has a lot to say about what art really is, Not just how it's created, but how it is presented. And he engages us in understanding that presentation by creating a short story that, well, I don't know, maybe if you look deeply enough, it is a masterpiece. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But we can tell if it is when we realize there's always more to say.
0: And remember, You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep.